Blog Talk Radio. speech-language pathologist, and welcome to Teach Me to Talk, the podcast. If you were a long-time listener, a long time ago with the podcast, I used to do the podcast every Sunday night, and I think I'm going back to that schedule, kind of looking at how our life is right now and what's going on with our our work schedule versus our home schedule and all that good stuff. So I'm hoping that, maybe a little earlier than it is right now, but that Sunday night is going to be our regular time. So few people listen to the show live. Uh, it's usually people listen later, but I'm just kind of giving you that big heads up that it's a, sort of a new time in case you want to start sort of planning around that. And let me just go ahead and say I am I have been inconsistent with the podcast lately because I was so busy getting Functional Phenology, which is my latest therapy manual, buttoned up and closed up and over the finish line, and that's a project that I've worked on for a long, long time. Uh, I started writing Functional Phenology, this latest therapy manual, back in 2012, and it is six years later, 2018, so I'm so excited that that book's out now. And if you haven't had a chance to get information about that, you can always go to Teach Me to Talk and Uh, get that information and make sure that you go ahead and get your copy too. So tonight, that's what we're going to be talking about. We're actually finishing up the series that we've had going with the podcast called I Need a Plan. And in this last series of shows, I think this is maybe the fifth show or sixth show in this little series, but the whole premise is when we start working with light-talking toddlers or a toddler with any kind of identified developmental delay where speech-language issues are a part of that, we need a plan (laughs) for working with them to be sure that we are covering all our bases and that we're not just focusing on one or two little aspects of whatever's going on with them communicatively. And so we started way back six shows ago and talked about that overall kind of hierarchy with first we look at a child's social skills. How is he interacting with other people? How engaged is he when he is uh, communicating with other people? Is it easy to get him to stay with you and want to be with you and want to try to share experiences with you, or is that really, really hard? And we said when kids don't have normal interaction skills that that's our very first place that we start. And so we spent a whole show kind of talking about the background of this whole kind of premise and then and what each of these areas mean. And then we went on to do just an individual show about social skills. Now, the next little area, once a child, once that's under control and once we feel like, gosh, there are not as many red flags, this is improving, he's staying with me more, this is not as much of an issue. And for some kids, again, they won't have any problems with this. They're light talkers or they may even have some other little developmental red flags, but social interaction is fine. That is not an area of concern. So then we move on to the next area, which would be receptive language. And remember, receptive language is how children understand the words they hear. So do they follow directions? Can they stay with you during a conversation well enough to participate? Do they anticipate things that happen in their daily routines? And part, a big part of receptive language is cognition. So remember, cognitive skills are how a child thinks, how he learns, how he remembers, how he pays attention. And in children under three, it's so difficult to separate receptive language and cognition. So we really don't even try because it's sort of, I mean, we can certainly have nonverbal 
cognitive skills, but really it's so interlaced for toddlers. So we think about those as, again, the same kind of synonymous areas of development for children. So that was our next little thing. We want to make sure that kids know what words mean because children have to understand what a word means before they can use that word to communicate with other people. So that was our next little piece, the receptive language piece. And then once that's moving along, when children are following directions, and remember we said that by 15 to 18 months, children should be following a variety of simple commands in everyday routines. Once that's going pretty well, then we look at that next piece of the hierarchy, which is expressive language. And remember the last two shows, we've talked about how we teach a child to move from being nonverbal to using some single words and some short phrases. And remember, we did a whole show about that imitation hierarchy. And this is show number 352, so that was show number 350, if you've not listened to that show. And we walked through that whole that whole series of strategies. And remember, it's the whole part of that is based, or the whole entirety of that is based on you can't start by teaching a child to say words or imitate words when they're a late talker because usually that process has broken down at an earlier developmental level. And so we walk through that whole process of teaching a child to imitate. We talked about how important imitation is for expressive language development. And so we begin with actions with objects, and we move through gestures, and then we move through easier, earlier vocalizations like play sounds, and we got all the way up to verbal routines and then single words and then phrases. And then last week's show, we sandwiched expressive language with there are some kids who are not quite developmentally ready to work on that imitation hierarchy, they need sort of an in-between step. So we talked about things like alternative augmentative communication systems. So things like using sign language and picture systems and speech generating devices. And we just talked about some really basic strategies for those kinds of things. And then we also spent the end of that show, we sort of, again, sandwiched the information in show number 350. We did sort of the pre-part of that uh treatment plan at the beginning of show number 351 and then we did the the latter part of it so what would come after a child learns how to uh, imitate a lot of single words and imitate some phrases we talked about making the leap from words to phrases and how we get a child over the hump so to speak in using phrases and and, and when that's been really really hard so there are there's a subset of late talkers who get kind of stuck at that single word level so we spent some time last show talking about how to help ch- children learn how to imitate and then spontaneously use phrases. And we talked about things like modeling and withholding and sabotage and using choices. And actually, I said that out of order. <laughs> it really, our, our hierarchy there is we use modeling and then we give kids lots and lots of choices so that they learn how to imitate in a less structured fashion, and then we moved on to withholding and sabotage to teach a child how to request spontaneously and then to teach them how to initiate. So that was last show. So those were the first three parts of this I need a plan when we're looking at an overall hierarchy for treating toddlers. And tonight's show is the final icing on the cake, the fourth piece in this big overall 
plan for looking at a child very, very comprehensively and very, very thoroughly, and it's talking about speech intelligibility. And like I mentioned before, this is such a nice tie-in for my new therapy manual that's just released on November 15th is when it started shipping. The pre-sale period actually started back on November 2nd, but this is what this whole latest therapy manual is about. It's treating speech intelligibility issues in toddlers. And so tonight is really sort of a preview of that book, but it's also to finish up this I Need a Plan series so that we can look at that this speech intelligibility piece, which is what comes last. And I just want to say that I am a language, language, language therapist, meaning that it will always be more important for me to prioritize what a child is trying to say versus how he says it. And so speech intelligibility, if you're a parent, really refers to how well you understand a child. So what percentage? Do you get half of what he says? Do you get 75% of what he says to you? And so we have to remember that when we're looking at this kind of thing, we don't even begin to target speech intelligibility until all those other three big pieces that we've just reviewed are really, really progressing nicely. So we would never work on speech intelligibility with a child who is still having lots of social interaction problems. Now, why is that? Because the foundation has not been built. It is impossible to work with articulation and with helping a child get the right sounds in the right places when they're not even staying with you, when they're not consistently participating and sharing experiences with you. Can you see how that would be totally counterproductive to try to have a two- or three-year-old working on put your lips together to say P or you know spread your lips and say E if you're working on a vowel sound. Can you see how that is just totally a big waste of time with a child who can't really stay with you and participate? So you have to get that social piece in place first. We also would not work with a child with speech intelligibility or articulation issues who isn't able to follow directions, and that would be a kid who has big receptive language problems. And so can you see from a real common sense perspective that if you're saying to a child, put your lips together and he can't follow that direction, why in the world, again, would you waste your time doing that? You've got to teach him how to follow directions more consistently before any of these kinds of cues for speech intelligibility will make sense. And so that's why we've talked about this whole hierarchy piece in the first place, because when we try to work on things that are too hard for children, we automatically know that we're going to spin our wheels and not make any progress. So again, the speech intelligibility piece actually comes last after all these things are established. And let's just go ahead and say, you would not worry about how well a child is understood if he's not really, really talking. He has to have some words first before we can analyze his speech patterns. We don't know, if we don't know anything that he's trying to say and we don't have any kind of consistent vocabulary, with it, which is what expressive language is, there's no way that we would start thinking about speech intelligibility. Many, many, many speech language pathologists who are experts in phonology say, and just so you know, phonology is a, a child's sound system. They say a child has to have at least 25 spontaneous, consistent words before we even think about uh, coming up with patterns and, again, really, really analyzing with any kind of validity or reliability that child's speech sound system. So that means he has to have an established vocabulary. So that's where the expressive language piece comes in. And so can you see just walking through this whole process that you 
don't want to work on these things out of order. So speech intelligibility comes last. After a kid is engaged and consistently interacting with you, after there's that reciprocal back-and-forth communication going, he takes turns, he understands that he's talking with you, he understands that he's listening to you, he's following directions, and he's starting to talk on his own. And truth be told, I think children need a bigger vocabulary. I like for them to be using lots and lots and lots of single words and at least be, if they are over two, at the phrase level. And we certainly would wait until a toddler is well past two before we would do any kind of formal analysis with his speech sound system or before we would really treat a child's articulation or phonological skills. And let me just say that maturity plays a big, big part in this. And that's why I don't work on articulation or really prioritize that with a child's treatment plan until they are closer to that third birthday. So somewhere between that 30 to 36-month level. Now, that means formally treating and formally analyzing. That never precludes just the kind of everyday cueing that even we as parents do with our toddlers when they mispronounce a word. So treating it, you know, really analyzing it, really evaluating and determining what patterns are missing is so, so different from just that mild everyday cueing. So let's just say a child says tutti, he substitutes a t for a k in cookie. And so we would say for a kid like that, even if he were 24 months, we, if he says he wants a tootie, we would say, oh, you mean cookie, cookie, oh, you want a cookie, and we're really modeling that. And, again, there's such a differentiation between cueing versus treating. And by treating, I mean that we're going to say something like, you know, watch me listen. It's my throaty sound. I make it way back here, Listen, listen to me say that. Oh, look, look at my mouth. Watch me say it. And so, again, can you see how that level of cueing is bumped up versus just saying to a child, oh, you mean cookie. And that's the difference, again, between modeling that sound versus, quote, unquote, treating that sound. So I've kind of jumped ahead of myself a little bit. Let's back up and, and talk about what's normal and what's not for uh, speech intelligibility for toddlers. Now remember, even children with typically developing speech language skills are hard to understand sometimes. And that's just part of growing up. That's just part of learning how to talk. And so let's look at what the intelligibility levels and expectations are for typically developing toddlers because I think you might be a little bit surprised, especially if you're not a speech-language pathologist, if you're a therapist in another field, or if you're a parent. Your uh, your basis for comparison may be a little bit off. So let me just tell you what's normal. Between 19 and 24 months of age, typically developing toddlers are understood 25 to 50% of the time. So for a typically developing toddler who is turning two, his or her parents only understand them about half the time. So for some of you, that news may be shocking. Let me just say, too, if you're a parent whose child is not talking at all, <laughs> you are probably thinking, you know, who cares how he sounds? I just want to hear him try to talk. I just want to really sort of know that he's at least trying. And I hear you, and that's how I feel about this, too. But when we look at these intelligibility scores, they're actually pretty broad and pretty generous as far as only 50% intelligibility or 25 to 50% at that second birthday. 
between two years and three years, intelligibility increases gradually between those birthdays so that by the time a child turns three, familiar listeners, that would be caregivers, so his sitter, his grandparents, if he sees them all the time, his parents, understand about three-quarters of what he says. Between four and five, that's when kids start to sound really, really adult-like. So by that fifth birthday, children are really understood about 90% of the time. So look at that, that range, and so then you start to think, well, I'm not going to worry so much about this two-year-old that I understand only 75 to 80% of the time, and you would be absolutely correct in that <laughs> because all children, all little kids are hard to understand when they're learning how to talk, and that's just part of it. That's part of the maturation process. So I wanted to just begin with those numbers because sometimes parents, again, get a little bit skewed. And let's say they've had a child, uh, let's say that they're worried about a child who's their second child or their third child or their fourth child, and their other children had really, really high intelligibility scores, and then you get a kid that falls more in the normal or maybe just a little bit below normal expectation, and we get a little bit wigged out or we flip out a little bit or we make way too big a deal about how well they're understood and so I wanted to share this information because for some parents this might be a little bit of a relief to hear that all kids are more difficult to understand in this toddler phase and again that's kind of common sense you may sort of be scratching your head and wondering why I'm spending so much time talking about this but it is a really important point we cannot have unrealistic expectations for a child's speech-language skills, especially when they've been late talkers. And we know that any time one part of a child's little system is disrupted, that they're likely to have ripples or problems, areas, in kind of that total, the totality of that developmental domain. So when we've had a kid who's a little later to acquire first words, we could almost expect that there might be some issues with getting all the right sounds in the right places because we know that there's some kind of disruption in that system in the first place. And so when you think about it like that, when I tell parents that, a lot of times, again, they're a little bit relieved because they think, okay, that makes sense to me. If he had trouble learning how to talk, he's going to have trouble learning how to be understood. On the other hand, let me just share this experience. I uh, used to have a friend who was a therapist, and she would say to parents this advice or this, she would just say this a lot. Every time she said it, I would sort of cringe because it made parents so uncomfortable. But she would say, well, you know, don't worry about when he learns how to talk because he's not going to be able to understand him anyway. And every time she said it in my presence, I would have to stop myself from reaching over and kind of choking her. And I'm sort of, <laughs> I'm sort of joking about that, but not really because that's really, really deflating to parents. And it is sort of expected that a child or, or we can, again, from a common sense perspective, think if he has some language problems, meaning vocabulary problems, again, beginning to say first words, understanding what words mean, if he has problems doing that, we know that he is more at risk to be harder to understand than a child who did not have those issues because, again, there are problems in that speech-language domain or that big area. But at the same time, we can't crush parents' hopes. <laughs> and we can't just have it constantly be bad news after bad news after bad news. So I think that's so discouraging to say to a parent, well, don't be so eager for these first words because you won't understand them anyway. I would never, ever, ever want to get that expectation to a parent because, again, I think it's so negative and so defeating. But at the same time, 
we can't be unrealistic in what our little late talking friends are able to do either. So just wanted to sort of start with that so that we can make sure that we're all on the same page about that. And especially if you're a therapist, I want you to be super sensitive to parents' needs and to what parents are feeling about their children. And so to say to a parent of a child who's not talking, hey, don't worry about it because it, it might get worse before it gets better, which is another thing that the therapist would like to say all the time. And, and we don't want to really do that either. And we don't want to set our children up to fail. We do want to be realistic about it, but at the same time, I, I just think that's not a great message that we want to send to parents. All right, so that was what's normal and what those intelligibility percentages were. Let's talk about, too, some other big red flags. And so you're saying, oh, I, my child or the child that I'm working with is understood less than those the less than those ratings that you gave, but then or or maybe let's say they're really really borderline, and you're trying to really distinguish is this a problem or is it is it not so much of a big deal with the speech intelligibility piece? What are some other red flags that we can look for? Now this information is evidence based. It's uh, based on a study. It's uh, in 1994 by Stowell Gammon and her associates. But these red flags, I think, have held so true throughout my career. And this is the the list that I'm going to hang on to forever <laughs> until current research surpasses this, what I know to be really, really true. And so this is when children, when toddlers, again, we're talking about kids who are in that two- and three-year-old range, when we say, man, this, intelligibility piece is a big deal and we should be focusing on this in therapy. So these are the characteristics in the child's speech that would let you know that speech intelligibility is a problem and this needs to be a part of their overall speech therapy plan. This would be when kids have lots of vowel errors. So if you're a parent, think back to school. What are vowels when you're thinking about the alphabet? So A, E, I, O, U, and sometimes Y. And remember that there are lots of different vowel sounds in English. And even more in British English or Australian English, if you happen to be listening outside the USA. So numerous vowel errors. That means for a word like, uh, let's not use car, for a word like pop, if a child said puh, and he used the uh sound for ah. Or let's say he doesn't call his, his dad daddy or dad. He's You know, he says duh. You know, he, he might substitute a really neutral vowel, that uh sound, for lots of different vowels. And so why is that a big deal? It's because it makes him so hard to understand. Vowels carry so much intelligibility load when we speak. Vowels are what make me sound southern as someone from a southern state in the USA versus someone who lives in the northeast or someone who lives in the northwest or any other or the midwest any other part of the country so or, or vowels are what really separate native speakers of a language versus someone who's acquired a second language they've learned it later so super super important piece and so some errors, some vowel errors are still acceptable when children are turning two, but by three, all vowels should be mastered. And so when we have a child who's who's turning three or really, really close to three, and they are still making lots and lots of errors with their vowels, we know that speech intelligibility is going to be significantly decreased. So we have to really, really pay attention to that. Another big red flag for an articulation disorder 
would be widespread deletion of initial consonants. So in regular language, what does that mean? That means they leave off the beginning sound of a word. So for a, a phrase like, I want a cookie, it would be, I, uh, uh, uh. I mean, can you see how that, and I did some little vowel errors in there too. Can you see how that would be really, really hard to understand? Absolutely, because they didn't get the W in want, and they didn't get the K in cookie. And so you're sort of left just kind of standing there scratching your head, looking around like, what in the world did that kid say? So when children leave off the beginning sounds of words, it really, really also negatively impacts their intelligibility. Children should use at least three to four different consonant sounds at the beginning of words by the time they're turning two. And so by the time they're three, children should have a large repertoire of initial consonants. So when we have a kid who is 32 months, 34 months, 36 months, and they only have a couple of consonant sounds, let's say they can only say sounds made at the front of their mouth, P's, B's, and M's, they are really hard to understand because, again, many, many, many of their words sound the same. So let's say they substitute a, the T sound and the D sound and the K sound and the G sound and the W sound that they use P's and B's for all those sounds. Again, can you see what a problem that would be? So limited consonant sound use is a big red flag, and it nearly always indicates that there's some kind of disorder going on. Now, let's talk about the difference between delay and disorder. Disorder means that it's atypical development that things are not what we expect. So that, by nature, is a lot more severe or more significant. When a child just has a delay, it just means the timing is off. So things are coming in as expected. It's just late. It's just slow. So delays are much less serious than disorders are. So when we start to really listen to a child talk who's closer to three and he's having difficulty with vowels and he's leaving off the beginning sounds in words, we know automatically that he's going to have a much, 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 much more difficult time being understood. So, again, that's kind of the nature of, of what we're talking about here. And remember that we're comparing toddlers to other typically developing toddlers. So when children have, nearly all children have mastered vowel sounds, by, all vowel sounds by the time they're turning three, and they include lots and lots of different sounds at the beginning of words, we know that that's when we have a child who's not doing that, that that's significantly different than what's expected, and that would make it a disorder. That would make it, again, much more severe and more significant, and we know that we need to address it. Another big red flag for articulation, uh, an articulation problem, is when children substitute sounds made at the back of the mouth, so pharyngeal consonants for you SLPs, so K's and G's, or even a glottal consonant like or H for lots of other sounds. So we call that backing, so meaning that children take sounds made at the front and the middle of the mouth and they make, move it to the back. So that's kind of called backing. Uh, and so that is significantly different from what we would expect to see because toddlers and babies typically learn to use words made with consonants at the front of the mouth first. So words that begin with P, B, M. And so when kids aren't using those sounds first and are really substituting K's and G's for that or H's for that, that's so different from the norm. So again, that's what makes it a red flag. It's not what most other toddlers are doing. The last red flag here is deletion of final consonants after H3. 
So this again would be consonant sounds. And this would be, we've already talked about sounds at the beginning of the word. So if by the time they're turning three, a child's third birthday, they're not putting some ending sounds on the words, we know that that's problematic as well. Because, again, that's a big contributor to intelligibility. It's finishing a word. And so think about words like pop. A child would say pa for that. Or a word like hat or cat. A child would say ha and cat instead of getting that ending sound on there. So that's what final consonant deletion is. Now, let me just interject some of my own personal experience here. Yes, it's a big deal not to include final consonant sounds. And yes, we should work on that with children who are having difficulty being understood. But it is a very common problem, even in children with typically developing speech skills, not to put those ending consonants on until they're, they've turned three or really, really close to that third birthday. So when we're working with late-talking toddlers, again, the expectation is that everything would be on the late side. So I hardly think about final consonants until a child is well past three because, again, even with a typically developing toddler, we wouldn't worry about that. That would not really be a quote-unquote error until a child is, is over three. So with our little guys who were on the late side of acquiring milestones anyway, I think that's something that, again, is much lower on the totem pole than the, if when we were prioritizing our goals than the first uh, set of red flags that we talked about. So just wanted to interject that there. So those are the red flags for who we decide we're going to work on speech intelligibility with and who's not. So if we had a kid that's a little bit hard to understand, but most of their vowels are right and they do have, say, four or five different consonant sounds that they use consistently and accurately at the beginning of words, they, they do, uh, again, a variety of sounds. They have consonant sounds that are made at the, begin the front of the mouth and they use them at the beginnings of words and then sounds that are made at the middle of the mouth like T's, D's, and N's. And they're even starting to have some of those pharyngeal consonants like K's and G's. And occasionally you'll hear an ending sound on a word. I mean, that's a kid that, as a speech-language pathologist who specializes in early intervention, I wouldn't worry about that kid. I might try to clean up his speech a little bit, give some pretty minor cues, but that just would not be a significant enough problem for me to address. I would still be focused on vocabulary development and getting longer utterances and seeing what else I could address language-wise and really just let that speech system kick in and mature. Maturity is a big deal, especially with speech sound development and articulation development. And so I don't think we should prioritize this articulation uh, problem as something that's going to be the sole focus of therapy unless these big areas are, uh, like I said before, problematic. So unless we hear a lot of vowel errors, unless they're leaving off lots of beginning consonant sounds, unless they're substituting pharyngeal consonants for bilabials or alveolar sounds, unless they've already turned three and don't have any final consonant sounds. Those, again, are the big markers that I would use. All right, let's kind of switch gears a little bit 
and talk about, briefly talk about some diagnoses that are related to speech intelligibility problems. Now, if you are a parent and you have a child who's a late talker, chances are you may not even know what these words really, really mean. And so I don't want you to get too wrapped up in saying, I'm going to listen to this podcast and I'm going to take what this speech therapist said and I'm going to think that my child has this diagnosis based on this brief description in this podcast. It is a lot more complicated than that. And so what I'm really doing is just throwing this information out there for therapists to consider and even for parents to consider just so that you're aware that if a child has these kinds of overall developmental problems or maybe a medical diagnosis that, yeah, speech intelligibility is going to be a factor or something that we expect that we're going to need to address. So let's talk about the first one, which is dysarthria. Now, dysarthria means neuromuscular involvement. And let me just say, if you're a parent and you've heard the word dysarthria, I just want to pat the speech pathologist on the back that said that word to you because it's not a diagnosis that we even really talk about very much. Dysarthria, again, is is that's the speech component when a child has muscle tone differences. So diagnoses that result in low muscle tone or higher muscle tone. So low muscle tone can encompass things. Uh, children with Down syndrome have lower muscle tone. Children with cerebral palsy can have either higher muscle tone or lower muscle tone. So anything that's been neurologically based where there there's something, some kind of difference in a child's brain that results in a motoric difference throughout his body. So if he has low muscle tone and can't doesn't crawl on time, doesn't walk on time, has some areas that uh, just in a layman's terms look weaker, that the speech diagnosis that's associated with that is dysarthria. And again, it's a motor speech disorder. There are muscle problems, and not only would a child's legs and arms be affected by this kind of neuromuscular difference or brain difference, his speech would be affected too because the same little muscles that are responsible for helping his arms and legs uh, move are also affected as far as core strength for producing intelligible speech, as far as, again, his muscles in his throat and his mouth may be affected. So uh, it is a component. Now, children who have dysarthria nearly always have a known medical diagnosis. Now, it is possible not to have a diagnosis yet when you're two or three if the neuromuscular involvement is really, really mild. And so a child just might look to a parent like they're clumsy or they're just late with things or they, they just might be, their parents might just think, oh, he has excessive drooling and might not understand or somebody hasn't really talked to them, their pediatrician hasn't really identified, hey, this is a muscle tone difference. Or it's the pediatrician may know it and understand it but just hasn't really talked to parents about it. That's that could occur, but the biggest probability is that a child already has an established diagnosis. So again, that's one of the speech diagnoses that would result in decreased intel intelligibility in speech. Another motor speech problem is apraxia or suspected childhood apraxia of speech. And again, this is a motor speech disorder that occurs in the absence of neuromuscular problems. So a child just looking at his little muscle tone in his body, he looks fine. 
there's no real area of weakness. You can't really see low muscle tone or uh, as we talked about with dysarthria, it could be higher muscle tone too, so really, really rigid muscle tone So, uh, or, or fluctuating muscle tone. Apraxic kids or kids with apraxia don't have that kind of obvious muscle tone difference. However, they do have problems planning what they want to say. So even though they may know the word they want to say, it short circuits or misfires on the way to a child's mouth. And again, this is a really simplistic way to explain it. And if you are listening and have any kind of medical training, you may think that that's an oversimplification, but it's just, it's an explanation that parents really, really understand. So it's one that I like to still use. And so when kids have apraxia, there are problems in planning movement. So again, even though they know the word that they want to say, just can't quite get it all planned so that it's it, it 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 comes out the way that a child might intend to say the word. So it results in speech that's really, really difficult to understand. Now, apraxia is a really controversial diagnosis for a child who's under three. You know, a lot of times, a lot of people will talk about apraxia being overdiagnosed. At various stages in my career, I've actually thought that it was underdiagnosed, that we weren't really identifying motor planning problems like we should be. And there are certain populations of children, kids with red flags for autism, kids who have already been diagnosed with autism, really, really are at risk for uh, having apraxia as kind of a coexisting diagnosis because motor planning is, a, is sometimes really, really effective in kids who are on the spectrum too. There's a study that I included in my CEU course, Is It Autism, that talks about how often children with autism also have apraxia. It's like 63%, if I'm remembering that percentage off the top of my head correctly. So over half of the kids with autism also have apraxia. So when you think about that, it really, really, again, is an explanation for why a child's speech would not be understood, but the autism would be why they're not really communicating. Now, as a therapist, that's such an important point for us to be able to explain to parents. Like, it's not just about the speech intelligibility piece. Mostly for kids with autism, it's about that difficulty consistently interacting and relating to other people. It's about the difficulty with processing and understanding language consistently responding when someone talks to you. Those are the big issues when a child has autism. It's not the speech stuff. The, the apraxia piece of that is significant because we do need children to be able to plan the words that they want to say and be able to communicate those words intelligibly so we understand what their message is. But if they have a problem communicating, if they have a problem interacting and sharing experiences with other people and consistently responding to other people, that's a much bigger problem. And so I hope that makes sense to you as a parent and certainly as a therapist. We should go out of our way to explain these things to parents. Now, another really common reason for a child to have speech intelligibility problems is a phonological process. Uh, disorder, so phonological disorder. And again, these are patterns of sound errors that typically developing children also use. But the problem is that with kids with typically developing speech, those immature early patterns that 
that make kids sound almost like baby talk. And again, I'm so oversimplifying this right now. But those patterns of reducing the number of syllables in the word and leaving off final sounds and leaving off some, uh, getting some vowel sounds uh, substituted. Those are, are things that typically developing toddlers do too, but very, very early on. And it becomes a disorder when a child, again, has things that are unexpected in his speech sound development or when the problem just hangs on well past when it should go away. So lots of phonological processes that we've just talked about disappear by the time that typically developing children turn three. And so, again, when a kid is three and a half, four, four and a half, and he's still using these kinds of earlier patterns, he's going to be more difficult to understand because his peers have moved beyond this point. So phonological disorders, again, are patterns of error. So it's not so much the individual speech sounds that are affected like it is with dysarthria and apraxia, but it's that children do, again, really identifiable errors that are more... I guess you could think about them as language-based or linguistically based, like leaving off all the beginning sounds of words or the ending sounds of words. And so some of the some of the same things that we've already talked about, or they always substitute a whole class of sounds for another class of sounds. So as a parent, again, this might be too technical for you to understand, but get your speech pathologist to help you and kind of walk you through that. And individual children, again, there is some variability here. Uh, but uh, the, ther the therapist who's working directly with your child will be able to say yes or no if there are phonological disorders or a, a phonological disorder present. Now, and just don't forget about speech delay, too, and we already talked about that. Where sounds are coming in and patterns are coming in as expected, it's just slow. And our little guys who have developmental delay, I mean, that's the whole nature of a developmental delay. Things are slower coming in and things happen at later ages than we would like for them to happen. So those are the big diagnoses associated with kids who are difficult to understand. And so it almost, when you have a child who is especially closer to three or over three, parents do start to want to want to know, why is this happening? Why is he still harder to understand than his friends? What is the reason for this? And so sometimes a diagnosis can be really, really helpful to, to get a parent sort of over that why, why, why hump because then we have a name for it. There's a reason. And so I wanted to include that information too, especially when a child has had some gross motor problems. And again, sometimes professionals aren't really saying to parents as clearly as they should, if, a if your child is having difficulty learning to walk, chances are he's going to have difficulty learning how to talk too because, again, that's an overall muscular problem. And so that uh, his whole little system, it hasn't affected his motor skills just for walking. It also affects talking as well. And so we have to really be sure that we're sharing that with parents. All right, so those are kind of the main starting places when we talk about speech intelligibility in children and what we're looking for, what the norms are, what are the big red flags that let us know, hey, this is a problem, we better sit up and pay attention, and then what the diagnoses, the speech diagnoses, what that would be associated with. You know, and we could have gone through and talked about the specific kinds of errors that are noted with those diagnoses, 
Let me just review that really, really quickly because I think this will make a lot more sense to parents. When kids have dysarthria or that overall motor problem, they're also going to have characteristics with their speech that indicate that there's a motor problem. So slurred speech, weak or imprecise pronunciation of words. A lot of times when kids have had lower muscle tone through their bodies, they have weak respiratory support. So when they start to talk, they sound really, really breathy, maybe low volume, so they talk really, really softly. Uh, Hypernasality, they may not have really normal sounding M's and N's and NG sounds, so they, they are emitting air on those sounds. And so, again, those are kind of picky or more technical errors that a speech therapist might notice but that a parent may not or another therapist or teacher may not notice. But your therapist is going to be able to say, hey, this is why it's so hard to understand because it really is a muscle tone issue. The thing about dysarthria, though, is their speech sound errors are really consistent, meaning that if they have trouble with the sound, they almost always have trouble with that sound. Other kinds of signs like uh, we already mentioned excessive drooling or you notice like if they have one side of their body that's weaker than the other side, we'll notice that on their little faces too. So their lips might look a little weaker or their face looks a little bit asymmetrical when they're at rest. And so those are things that we would notice too and those are things that would let us differentiate dysarthria versus apraxia. Now, I don't think there's that we should have as much trouble distinguishing those diagnoses as we do because it's pretty clear cut. Is there a motor tone issue or muscle tone issue or is there not? And that is really the differentiation between dysarthria and apraxia. But some therapists just kind of forget all that stuff we learned in grad school <laughs> and they seem to have difficulty putting that together and they want to call dysarthria apraxia and that kind of drives me crazy when that happens. And let me just say, hey, I made that same mistake too really, really early on. And that's why we have to all go back to what we know about neurology. And so that uh, uh, is a way to for therapists to sort of really, really understand that, really grasp that, and really own that information in your mind. Now, remember, apraxia is different because there's no identifiable neuromuscular problem. So their, their issues aren't related to muscle tone things. So there's no real sounding weak or imprecise, these kids just leave off sounds or use sound substitutions. And they also have some differentiations with the characteristics of their speech sounds. So they would have a lot of errors with vowels and lots of errors with leaving off beginning consonants in the words. They also are really, really inconsistent with their errors. So they might mess up a word but say it perfectly the next time they try to say it or say the same word three or four different ways. So big, big inconsistency. A thing that happens with kids with apraxia, too, is they have a lot of difficulty getting imitation going. So we have a kid that, again, we have done everything we can to try to get them to repeat some words, and they just absolutely have cannot. I mean, they just have so much difficulty getting that going, especially before therapy begins. So that's that's a... Uh, way to differential diagnosis is what we call that in speech pathology. When we separate, you know, this versus that, a characteristic of this diagnosis versus a characteristic of that diagnosis, and those are the main things that we look for when we're 
distinguishing dysarthria versus apraxia. Phonological disorders are a little bit more complex because, again, those are normal kinds of things that happen until a child turns three. But here there are patterns, and a therapist can easily identify, oh, this is a phonological disorder because he, this pattern is what I, I observe with words uh, or how a child talks. And, again, the consistency is there, and it's, and it's pretty, um, well, a little bit more clear-cut about looking at he you know, he, he always glides. He, he's a glider or he's a backer or he's a fronter and those kinds of things. And, again, remember if you're a therapist, this show isn't just for therapists, so I'm trying my best not to be super clinical because we have a large audience of parents who listen to. But for parents to know that this, the phonological disorder piece is really what happens when children are light talkers. It sort of accompanies that. If they've been light talkers and have had that difficulty getting expressive language going, and then once they do start talking, they're really, really hard to understand. It's not always a phonological disorder because certainly kids with apraxia and kids with dysarthria will be light talkers too, but for different reasons. And when those reasons are not easily identified as dysarthria or apraxia, phonological disorder is kind of your other big diagnosis there. And so I hope that me including those brief explanations of diagnoses will make that a little bit easier for you to understand. All right, let's move on and talk about, for this last 10 minutes or so of the show, talk about what we do when a child is difficult to understand. What are some therapy techniques or what kinds of goals should we have? Because you really just can't start with a problem like he's hard to understand and then write a goal like, well, Joshua will be understood 80% of the time when he talks to his parents. And then we just try to fix every little error based on that. And sometimes we do write goals that are that broad because we're looking for sort of an overall long-term goal. But more often than not, we should be breaking this down. And then we, as a therapist, we're going to be saying, exactly what is it that he does that I need to change to make him easier to understand? And I think that that's a really good way to explain that to parents if you're a therapist. And that's the best part about this show is <laughs> helping us as therapists come up with better scripts or better ways to explain things to parents so that they really, really understand what's going on with their child who has a speech or language problem. And so that's one of the things that we say when we're talking with with parents when we're first starting to work on a speech intelligibility problem. It's not just that he's hard to understand or that he doesn't get all the sounds in the right places. It's really, really categorizing those kinds of errors and saying, what should I work on to, make, to get the most improvement right away with this child? What would be the greatest impact that I could make on this child's speech to help his parents and other people that he routinely interacts with, what could I improve, help this child improve that would help those important people in his life be able to understand him more regularly or with less difficulty? And so let's just go over these six priority patterns that I want to talk about. And again, these are things that are included in uh, my new book, Functional Phonology, and let me just say the reason that I titled the book Functional Phonology isn't because all children have, who are hard to understand have a phonological problem. It's because this is the best way to treat it. 
when we look at not individual speech sounds and I'm going to fix one little sound at a time, it's looking at these kind of the big picture here. And the functional part really means meaning. <laughs> it really means, again, what would make the most impact? What's most practical? What in terms of helping this child be easier to live with because you know what he's saying more of the time. His frustration level has decreased because you get what he's trying to communicate to you. That's what functional means. And if you'll see the title of this book in print, you'll see that I've done a little thing with the beginning part of the word functional. I've emphasized fun there, F-U-N, and capitalized that, sort of done a cheesy title with that, to emphasize fun. Because working on speech is so not fun. <laughs> and that's for everybody. It's for the kid. It's for the parent. It's for the therapist. Because changing how a child says a word when he's still in this early developmental period can be excruciating for all of us because it is, it's really, really hard for a young child to be able to monitor and change his or her own behavior. And if you'll think about that as an adult, Sometimes we almost dismiss the difficulty of getting a child to change anything like that because we we automatically think everything they're learning is new. Of course it's going to be hard for them, and that is true, but at the same time, speech is a little bit different than that because it is hard for a two- and three-year-old to really, first of all, hear what they're saying from a processing perspective and then to be able to change it and make it different. So I just want you to... Think about that level of difficulty as we're discussing how we change how a child talks. And the speech sound of that is just super, super, uh, it's just more complex than just, again, teaching a new word because we're really, really getting super picky about what we're uh, talking about there as well. So let's look at the, the six big areas that we would change in a child's speech and think about Think about uh, when we're targeting, you know, where's our starting point? What are the things that are going to make the most difference? And the very first pattern that we look at uh, is, does the child include the correct number of syllables in the word? Now, let me just say, it's not really a big deal if a two-year-old is trying to pronounce a word like encyclopedia, and they say cyclo, you know, they leave off a little a little bit of that word. You know, if they, or refrigerator, let's say they say refrigerator instead of refrigerator. That's not the problem that we're talking about. And that's, again, a, a, just a much less serious error because even children with typically developing speech make that kind of mistake. When they are learning how to talk, it's really expected. It's part of that, again, as we sort of think about Baby talk, lots of kids do that. I'm talking about children who can't combine two syllables. So instead of saying Elmo, they just say mo or uh. Instead of saying cracker, they may say ah and not cracker or have anything that really gets that second syllable in there. So when a child just basically talks in single syllables, he is super hard to understand. So syllableness is the very first pattern that we would target. Can a child combine syllables into words? And, you, you know, think about this too. Children also need to be able to combine syllables 
so that they can make phrases. So they bump up from a single word level to a phrase level. So syllableness is that first pattern that we would target. The second pattern that we would target, or that would be our first goal. So if we figured out a kid is really hard to understand, and one of the reasons is he never includes more than one syllable in a word at a time, or he, he can't get past that one syllable level, and so no wonder he's not using phrases. So this is not only impacting his speech intelligibility, it's also impacting his language development. So syllableness is that first pattern, and that would be our number one goal for a kid who's hard to understand, a toddler. And again, we're talking about kids in this two- and three-year-old range. The next error that we would look at, we've already talked about, is vowels. Is a child including correct vowels in words? And we already talked about this when we said that children with apraxia have lots of vowel have lots of problems with vowel differentiation. So they only use one or two vowels instead of seven or eight different vowels. And that's a real big problem again for intelligibility. So that would be the second pattern that we target. And vowel errors are really, really uncommon in children unless they have apraxia. So when we or suspected childhood apraxia of speech. So when we hear vowel errors that's the very first diagnosis as a therapist that you should automatically think about is, you know, that this is so different from the norm and it's different from a child with dysarthria and it's different from a child with a phonological disorder, although that can happen in, in just a straight phonological disorder. But more often than not, if a child has errors with his vowels, apraxia is your diagnosis there. And so that's your second goal. And it's a really, really important goal because remember we said that vowels carry lots of intelligibility load when we're talking. It's, that's what makes it easier for people to understand you. Vowels, again, are what give you your dialect or your accent. And so, you know, this is just kind of a longstanding joke with, uh, let's say, parents who have moved to Kentucky or have come to see me when, when before when I saw lots of kids for those second and third and, you know, seventh opinions that had seen other therapists and parents were coming from other places to uh, have me take that additional look at their child. And one of the kind of running jokes is, you know, when he does finally learn to talk, it's not going to sound like you, right? <laughs> and parents would get kind of, especially if they were from a different part of the country and they hear how southern I am, we get a little bit, a little bit uh, jokingly uh, concerned about that. And so vowels, again, carry so much information and so really play that huge part in intelligibility that we want to make sure that we're addressing that. The problem with that is, especially with speech pathologists who are, say, over 35 or 40, is when we were trained in grad school, we didn't talk a lot about vowels. Now, I have a daughter who's in grad school right now to be a speech-language pathologist, and they do talk about vowels a lot more than they did when I was in school. And so for some of us who have more miles on or years under our belt, vowels are, you know, we, we didn't learn how to fix that. And so I just want to just sort of throw that out there for parents who are thinking that, that you know, this is all, <laughs> that all skills are created equally, and that's not necessarily true. And so especially if you are, again, you might need some additional training and some additional, some new strategies and some new techniques if you, again, didn't get that full range of uh, correct vowels 
in in speech. Let's hurry through the rest of these because we're at the end of the show, but I want to finish up with these other priority patterns. The next pattern would be that initial consonant pattern. So if children are not including the beginning sounds and words, that's the next goal that we will work on. The goal after that would be can a child, does he use a variety of syllable shapes? So do all his words sound the same, meaning that he's just using a consonant vowel uh, syllable structure, or does he have lots of different syllable structures? And again, this is sort of technical, too technical to get into in the last two minutes of a show, but that's the next uh, next pattern that we want to look at. Does he have a lot of different word shapes? That's, again, answering the speech all of his words by how he actually says a word, not necessarily how it's spelled, and does he have a lot of different syllable shapes there. The next pattern is being able to change the vowel from syllable to syllable. And then that last sixth priority pattern that we look at is can he get those ending consonants in place. And again, this was a super short basic review of speech intelligibility in toddlers, but I wanted sort of to whet your appetite with that <laughs> uh, to get you started to, uh, starting to think about speech intelligibility in terms of what's normal, what should we really work on, meaning that it's a really big deal with a red flag, what is the diagnosis associated with the speech intelligibility problem, and then lastly, what are the kind of the the big priorities, the big goals that we should be thinking about instead of just, hey, I have to help this child be easier to understand. So let me just say, if this has, uh, as a therapist, if you've heard this information and, and you don't have a great way to work on these things, my new therapy manual, Functional Phonology, explains all of this in detail. And the very best part about that book is it's not just for therapists. I've written it in a way that committed parents can read it and understand it. And there are two fabulous charts in the book that I'm just so proud of. One is helping you understand if a child is developmentally ready to work on speech intelligibility, because remember we walked through that whole process at the beginning that if the social, a child's social interaction skills aren't really strong and stable, there's nobody that he's going to stay with you and care about how you're trying to change how he speaks. And if a child can't follow directions, how in the world are you going to get him to move his mouth differently to be able to change how he pronounces the word? If he can't identify body parts, if he can't point to his lips or stick out his tongue on command or understand something like, oh, let's say it at the back, let's say you know, that follow those kinds of directions, there's no way that he's ready for articulation therapy. So there's a huge or there's there's a big component of that in the book and a whole chapter about looking at the factors that tell you if he's ready to work on speech intelligibility or not. The second chart walks through those six patterns that we just reviewed and really helps you decide and gives you really specific but easy to understand directions with is this a pattern my child has mastered or is this a pattern he needs to work on? And then once you figure out if the kid's ready to work on articulation or speech intelligibility and then if what his goals are, you know, what he's mastered and what he's not mastered and what he still needs to work on. Lastly, I'll show you how to do it. And so the, the whole last half of the book, the real meat of the book, is taking those six patterns, teaching you your target words, 
teaching you the activities during everyday routines and then your therapy activities as well. How, you know, what are your words that you should be working on to help a child master that pattern? And not just any old words will do because so many times for therapy programs or pre-packaged articulation programs, they use words that aren't relevant for toddlers. So what I did is take the most common vocabulary for little kids, so two- and three-year-olds, and put that within those six big patterns. So every word you teach is going to be meaningful or relevant for most of the kids you're working with, even if they're late talkers, even if they struggle to acquire vocabulary. Is still going to be what you need. So I am so, so, so happy about this book and so proud of it. And it's a system that I've used and, like I said, been working on for six years now. So you can trust it because it's time-tested with the families that I've worked with. And so if you haven't read about that book, I would just, and you're interested in that, I just so encourage you to go to Teach Me to Talk and get that information. It's been on pre-sale the whole month of November. And if you're not listening to this in current time, November 2018, this show is not going to. Be, this part of the show is, you know, again irrelevant because it's the book had been has been out for a while. If you're listening to this in 2019 or 2020 or you know years to come, but at the same time, if you're listening now in real time, go get the information about that book because it's brand new. And I know if you're a therapist, it is going to make a big, big difference in how you practice, especially if this has been an area that you've struggled. And lots of us do because we try to take methods that are appropriate for older children and use them with our toddlers, and they're just ineffective because kids aren't at that same developmental level. So get your hands on that book. I know it's going to be helpful to you in your practice. All right, that is all for today. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of the podcast. I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech language pathologist. Visit my website at teachmetotalk.com. That's it for this week. Thank you so much. Bye.